Well, have you ever had someone make you a promise and then not keep it? That can be hard. Uh, in fact, <clears throat> that can be devastating depending upon the promise and how much you were counting on it, right? How much you came to believe in it and even put your faith in that promise. <clears throat> and yet, when there isn't much riding on a particular promise, right? If you have no faith in a promise that's made to begin with, well, then there's typically not a whole lot of letdown when that person fails to come through, right? It's hard when we're having this kind of conversation to not think about politics and politicians when we, we talk about broken promises, and yet it's difficult, if we're being honest, to get too bent out of shape when they don't make good on their promises because it seems to be so common for so many high-profile politicians to make empty promises in order to get elected and then make excuses once they are elected for why they're unable to make good on those promises. And we've seen that over and over again. So generally speaking, I think there's very little emotional investment, for me at least, when a politician makes a promise because there's very little faith that he or she will actually follow through. And of course, there are exceptions to that because there are some exceptional politicians who have earned people's trust and have a track record of fulfilling their promises. I'm simply making the point that not all broken promises have a remarkable effect on us. Depends on who the promise is coming from and our experience in history with them, right? Whereas a promise that we've placed, uh, listen, when there's a promise that you've placed life-altering faith in, like the kind of promises that you build your life around, when those promises are broken, we are broken. When a man and woman pledge their lives to one another in the sacrament of marriage, right? We structure our entire lives around that promise. We take certain jobs, we move to certain cities, we, we buy certain cars and houses and attend certain churches, we make certain friends, we get involved in certain hobbies, right? We, we make decisions about having kids and how to raise them and where to send them to school. We invest massive amounts of time and money and energy into those relationships, all based on a promise from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death parts us. When we're married, just about every area of our lives is structured with that promise in mind. And so when that promise is broken by one or both leaving the marriage, we become broken. Real devastation often follows in our lives and in the lives of those around us, right? Our kids, our family members, and even our close friends because we came to believe in and put our faith in that promise. And if you think about it, most areas of our lives are influenced by promises that are either made to us or by us. Whether they, they come in the form of an employment contract, right? A, a company's commitment, promise to give us a job based on our commitment to do the job. It can be membership at a church, an acceptance letter from a university, or a loan from the bank. Everything from tax returns to insurance policies and just about everything in between. We live our lives and make decisions daily based on promises that have been made to us or that we've made to others. And of course, the greatest promise of them all for followers of Jesus Christ is uh, the promise since before time began is the promise of Jesus Christ himself. And the results of that promise that we can with absolute 
certainty, depend and rely upon and put all of our faith and trust in the promise of Jesus Christ, right? Those are results that reverberate throughout all of eternity, which, by the way, includes your life in the here and now today. And so our entire lives, or at least they should be, built upon and structured around the promise of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, every single thing that we do and say and think and feel and express should be affected and influenced by that promise. And yet inexplicably, sometimes we as believers and followers of Christ, we, we live our lives as if we're not 100% convinced that he's actually going to make good on that promise to be who he says he is and to do what he said he would do. As if there's still some question to be answered or something for him to prove to us before we're totally convinced, right? which is really a critical error in our thinking. We, we make a mistake when we wonder if God will come through for us. Why? Because he has come through for us. Whether his promises are fulfilled on the same day that they're given or a year later or a thousand years later, he always makes good on his promises. And so the way in which we experience him fulfilling those promises, whether he does it when we want him to or how we want him to or not, it doesn't make him any more or less God, right? He is who he is. And our experience of him, whether meeting our approval or not, does not alter who he is in any way, shape, or form. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses says, The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, God keeps his promises distinctly because that's who he is. A covenant-keeping God. A promise-keeping God. Okay, And our faithfulness in believing that or a lack of it has no bearing whatsoever on the veracity, the truthfulness of that statement. God is God. And so our hope, our faith, our trust, our confidence, and likewise, our hopelessness, our doubt, our distrust, our uncertainty, all of those things may have great effect on who we are, but they have absolutely no effect on who God is. Okay, Our confidence in Him is not what makes Him worthy of our confidence. Our faith in Him is not what makes Him faithful. Our trust in Him is not what makes Him trustworthy, and our hope in Him is not what guarantees the hope that we have in Him. That's why the Apostle Paul says all the promises of God find their yes in who? In Him, not in us. 2 Corinthians 1.20, meaning all of God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. By the way, the word promise in that verse, it's a Greek word, pangelia. It refers to a pledge or, or a divine assurance of good. According to Paul, then, all the good that God has committed to doing for us in our lives, all of it, is found in Christ because of who he is, not because of who we are. And thank God for that, right? I'm so thankful that his promises for us are all wrapped up in who he is and in what he does. So... So why then do we, do we so often give ourselves so much credit in the process of things working out the way we want to in our lives as if God being God and coming through somehow also depends on us, right? It's not only errant thinking, but it, it places undue pressure on ourselves to try and work and will his promises into fulfillment in our lives when, when all that actually is accomplished there is it reinforces our own insecurities and, and it wears us out in the process. 
Of course, knowing that, Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 and 29. So why, why do we allow ourselves to become so anxious about things like elections and economies and viruses and the weather and wars and the stock market and how much people like us or don't like us and everything else that we worry about? I'm not talking about being unfeeling, by the way. Of course, we can, we can have concern. We can even grieve over situations in our lives and in other people's lives. There's nothing wrong with that. That's simply being human. But so much of the anxiety that plagues believers today is, as a matter of fact, rooted in doubt that God actually is who he says he is. We probably wouldn't express it that way consciously, but that's certainly how we behave when we worry ourselves half to death over outcomes that we're not in control of. Referring to Jesus, Peter said, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Not our promises, his, 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. So do we labor for Christ? Do we sacrifice for him? Do we practice obedience and service to him? Well, of course we do. But listen, at the end of the day, the fulfillment of every single promise is found in him, not in us, because of who he is. It's exactly what we see in our story today as we finish our study through the book of Esther, where we find God's people not only celebrating the fulfillment of specific promises to them from hundreds of years earlier, but also experiencing the fulfillment of specific promises to all of his people, which includes you and me today. Promises that we really need to be reminded of. In fact, it's so important to remember the fulfillment of his promises that this particular celebration in this story is instituted perpetually for the Jews, as we'll see. So they will never forget the promises that he fulfilled for them, but also so they would never forget the promise of who he is. And much in the same way, we need to be reminded not only of his promises, but we need to remember exactly who it is that made those promises. All that he's done for us, which of course is our source of confidence and hope for the future, so that we don't have to worry or fret or be anxious about anything because God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. That means he is the one who will never break his promise to you. We're going to look at some of those promises this morning in our story, which really should give us tremendous confidence and hope for our future, no matter what you may be facing today. So let's turn there to Esther chapter 9. We'll pick up the story where we left off last week. We're going to finish this book today. There are only 16 verses left in the remainder of chapter 9 and chapter 10 combined. Uh, just to revisit the events preceding this, uh, these final verses, in case you weren't here. The Jews have just had two very successful days defending themselves against their enemies across the Persian Empire who were seeking to destroy them. Under the royal edict created by Haman, the, the descendant of Agag, king of the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of God's people. And so after two days of fighting, the Jews killed over 75,000 of their enemies, which was a complete and overwhelming victory that not only spared the Jews from being annihilated, but also cemented the fear and respect of Mordecai, Esther, and all of the Jewish people in the hearts and minds of the Persians throughout the empire. 
in what amounted to a complete reversal of what was planned against the Jews. But listen, even more than all of that, this was the fulfillment of an ancient promise by God to the Jewish people from a thousand years earlier in Deuteronomy 25 and then commanded to King Saul 400 years after that. And yet Saul failed to carry out that command. And so instead of fulfilling that promise through Moses or through Saul or through David, these renowned mighty men of God, he chooses to do it through a young Jewish girl whose parents had both died, raised in exile in a pagan nation, a nation whose leadership was committed to wiping the Jews off the face of the planet. There's a Koine Greek or ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was produced during the intertestamental period, the time frame between the New and Old Testaments which, by the way, the Apostle Paul quotes from uh, excessively throughout the New Testament. And in the Septuagint version of Esther, there were additional chapters which are not included in the Bible as we know it today. But listen, if nothing else, they give us insight into how the story of Esther was understood and interpreted during that time period that this was written. And in one of those added chapters, Mordecai has a prophetic dream and interpretation where he describes himself and Haman as two dragons and Esther as a little spring that becomes a mighty river. I would say that's certainly an accurate description of the astounding progression of the life of this little Jewish girl. How, how in the world could such a profound promise that was given to the entire nation of Israel, how could that be fulfilled through such an unassuming, humble young girl without any prospects of her own for a notable, let alone history-changing future? Certainly Esther could have never predicted or engineered such an extraordinary life for herself. How could it ever be that the promise, salvation for God's people, how could it come this way? It's because all the promises of God find their yes in Him. See, it was His plan all along. In fact, a thousand years earlier, when the promise was made through Moses, he said, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. Deuteronomy 25, 19, and at the close of Esther's story, just as the seed of Amalek is blotted out, the celebration of Purim is instituted. Why? So the Jews would never forget which was and is today, by the way, a celebration of remembrance, not only of what God did in fulfilling his promise, but in who he is, a promise-keeping God. It's nothing short of amazing to see the plan of God for his people unfold over a thousand years. And of course, it's still unfolding today. So let's read the story together. And as usual, I'll stop and comment along the way. But once we've read through to the end of the book, we're going to go back and focus on verse 22 of chapter 9, which I believe is the heart of this part of the story. So uh, let's start at chapter 9, verse 20, and we'll read to the end of the chapter to start. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. 
So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim after the term pure. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commendation of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim and it was recorded in writing. So this is the inauguration and the institutionalization of the Feast of Purim, which, by the way, the Jews still celebrate today. And just as we see in verses 20 and 21 that Purim in antiquity was celebrated on two different days according to the two days of fighting and subsequent peace, likewise today Jews all around the world still celebrate Purim on Adar 14, except for those who live in one of the cities that were traditionally considered to be walled Uh, cities at the time of Joshua, which would include uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, and Jericho, where they celebrate Purim on Adar 15, with Adar roughly corresponding uh, basically to the month of March. And uh, just as a point of interest, the Jews still send gifts of food uh, to friends and family during Purim today, and they gather at the synagogues where the book of Esther is read in its entirety. And while the story is being read, everyone cheers every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, and they boo and hiss every time Haman's name is mentioned. It's a very festive time of celebration and remembrance still for the Jews today. And then verses 24 through 26 explain why the feast is called Purim, which is the Hebrew plural of the Akkadian or Persian word pure, which refers to the dice or lots that were cast by Haman in divination to determine the day of slaughter that he was planning for the Jewish race. So calling the feast Purim is meant to remind the Jewish people that no matter what men may say or do, even some of the most powerful men in the world, no matter what they say or do, never forget that God is the ultimate arbiter of your future. He is in control of your lot in life and he alone is responsible for fulfilling the promises to his people. And so the fact that the Jewish people still recognize and celebrate Purim today is actually a fulfillment of verse 28, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And interestingly, in yet another fulfillment of an ancient promise, verse 32 says, the command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. 
Back in Exodus 17, 14, when the Lord promised to wipe out the memory of Amalek of the Amalekites, he told Moses to write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. So the battles are won. Purim is established so the Jews will never forget what God did. He fulfilled his promise and so they will never forget who he is, a promise-keeping God. And all of that is written down recorded for all generations to come and then the book comes to a close with chapter 10 these three final verses which after all of the turmoil and uncertainty and manipulation and lies and secret plotting and outright war these final three verses paint a final picture of God's people at peace let's read it chapter 10 King Ahasuerus imposed tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might, and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So King Ahasuerus reinstitutes the regular tax, which you'll remember was suspended back in chapter 2 in celebration of the new queen. The Jews are finally at peace and under the protection of Mordecai and Esther, who incidentally, uh, as tradition has it, lived out their lives to the fullest. While according to the 4th century B.C. historian Herodotus, King Ahasuerus was eventually assassinated in his bedroom by the commander of his own royal bodyguards because of an illicit affair, uh, the details of which will make your head spin. So I'm not going to take time to read that story here, but... It's amazing to me, as a side note, that a guy who has hundreds of concubines can't seem to live without another man's wife. So he's killed for it, which also underscores the glaring disparity between the ongoing turmoil of the Persians and the simultaneous peace of the Jews. And so all of that is in conclusion to this wonderful and powerful story that we've explored together over the past couple of months. And yet in all of these concluding verses, there's one verse Verse 22, chapter 9, that it really encapsulates the essence of God's promise to his people, both then and now. And so we're going to go back to that verse and spend the remainder of our time today with the words that Mordecai wrote to his people as our focal point, as, as those words reveal not only the heart of this story, but the heart of God's promise to us today as well. And, and so just for context, let's start at verse 20 and read again through the first part of verse 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. So the first part of God's promise to his people that was fulfilled in the story is the fact that he turned their distress into peace. And so Mordecai says that Purim will forever be a day that the Jews celebrate relief, peace from their enemies, relief from the distress that the Jews had lived under for so long. Remember, they were living uh, in a pagan land as foreigners in exile. And in fact, Purim was all about that relief, that peace that they had so longed for for so long. Karen Jobes points out that if you look at most holidays that commemorate war or, or victory or even military hostilities, typically those days are celebrated on the same day that the battle occurred. So, for instance, Bastille Day in France, July 14th, uh, Boston Massacre Day, March 5th, Cinco de Mayo in Mexico, May 5th, 
Revolution Day in the former Soviet Union, November 7th, all celebrated on the day of the battle itself. But Purim isn't uh, celebrated on the day of the battle. The fighting between the Jews and their enemies in Persia took place on Adar 13 and 14. But the celebration of Purim is on the 14th and 15th, respectively, the days after the fighting occurred. Why? Because they aren't celebrating the battle. They aren't celebrating the fighting or the strife or the slaughter of their enemies. No, they're celebrating the relief, the peace they experienced after the fight was over. It's precisely what God promises us today, by the way, relief Peace from our distress to the point of celebration. In Philippians 4, 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. In other words, celebrate with one another. Why? Because Paul says the Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God. It's the same promise. The peace of God will surpass all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That is a promise. It's relief from our distress. It's peace beyond what we can even understand. In 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10, Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, Because he cares for you, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. I love the fact that it says he's like a roaring lion. He doesn't really have any teeth like a lion. Seeking someone to devour, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. In other words, I will give you relief from the enemy. It's the same promise, a promise from God to us that when we humble ourselves, just as Esther did and just as Mordecai did, and cast our anxieties on him, just as they did, right? They fasted and prayed for three days and resist the enemy, just as they did. Remember, Mordecai refused to bow to Haman, God will restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us just as he did for Mordecai and Esther and all the Jews. How do I know that? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his promise is as good today as it was then. Now listen, we're not promised a trouble-free life, a distress-free life, but we are most certainly promised victory over that trouble and peace in place of that distress And so we can celebrate in the knowledge that he made a promise through his word. And then he modeled the promise through the nation of Israel. Then he sent his son to achieve the promise through his life, death, and resurrection. Then he sent his Holy Spirit to realize the promise in and through our lives. And so all that's left is for us to accept the promise that has been freely offered. So why do believers live in fear of the enemy? When victory over him and relief from our distress has already been promised, modeled, achieved, and realized. Why? It's because we haven't fully accepted it. See, we think we still have to push all the right buttons and check all the right boxes before we can experience relief from our distress and our circumstances. We have to perform our way into God's good graces. 
before we can have peace, even in the midst of our troubles. That's not, listen, he didn't say all the promises of God find their yes in you. No, he said all the promises of God find their yes in him. All that he expects from us is to humble ourselves before him and cast all our anxiety on him. Keep our faith firm in him because the promise of victory over our enemy and peace in our distress is only and always found in him. The circumstances may be different from our story today, but the promise is exactly the same. At times, this life will most certainly give you more than you can handle. That's a fact. Many of you don't need to hear me say that because you've experienced it. Sometimes this life will give you more than you can handle and sometimes a whole lot more. But even in the midst of that, he offers you peace that passes your own understanding and relief from your distress. You know why? Because it's not more than he can handle. That's why we cast our cares on him. Because he can handle what you can't. You just need to accept that which he's already promised you. And listen, if you continue reading verse 22, Mordecai obligates them to celebrate. He says, the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness. It's the second part of God's promise to his people that was fulfilled in this story. It's the fact that he turned their sorrow into joy. Verses 24 and 25, Mordecai writes, Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pure, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, and by the way, the word it in that verse, when it came before the king, the word it's a feminine pronoun in the Hebrew. It means that could either be a reference to Esther or the evil plot. But the point is, even if it refers to the plot, that plot wouldn't have come before the king if it hadn't been for Esther. So keep that in mind. When it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Okay, in an instant, the Jews' sorrow was turned into gladness. How did that happen? It happened when Esther took her sorrow before the king. That was the moment when she took her sorrow before the king. Her sorrow was turned into joy. And Peter said, cast all your anxiety and all your sorrows on him because he cares for you. Just as Esther's sorrow was turned to gladness once she took her great sorrow before the king, we must take all of our sorrow before the king for it is only in his presence that we find true and lasting joy. Just before Jesus was crucified and resurrected, he said to his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It's the same promise. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she's delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 20 through 22, the joy that he's talking about here can only be found in the presence of Jesus Christ and we've been given free access to him by way of his Holy Spirit. I can attest to you firsthand, I'm sure many of you can as well, that there is sorrow in this life that can only only be turned into joy when we are in the presence of Jesus Christ himself. When you're in full-time 
vocational ministry. You spend a significant amount of time with hurting people. I've seen enough sorrow in people's lives to last 10 lifetimes. But it just keeps coming. Because this world is broken. It's full of broken people. Which often results in the deepest kind of hurt that you never want to imagine. I'm telling you that counseling can only take you so far. I believe in it. I participate in it. Counseling can only take you so far. I'm not at all opposed to medicines and certain medications, but listen, medication can only take you so far. I've seen therapy work wonders in people's lives, but therapy can only take you so far because there are people who have been wounded so deeply, abused so horrifically, emotionally marred so unbelievably, people who have experienced loss that cannot be replaced. There are people who have been hurt to the point that pastors and doctors and therapists are unable to help them. See, there's sorrow in this life that is so deep and irreconcilable that there is no remedy outside of the presence of Jesus Christ. But now in him, listen, in him, no matter how deep the hurt, in him there is joy unspeakable. In his presence, our sorrow is turned to joy. But do you understand what that means? It means you have to take that sorrow before the king. You have to be willing to accept the promise that in his presence you will find joy that no one can take away from you. Prayer, worship, Meditation, time, copious amounts of time in the presence of our King, Jesus Christ, is sometimes the only prescription for turning your sorrow into joy. Because it's a promise. It's a promise He's made to you. And He's a promise-keeping God. Finally, Mordecai writes to his people to celebrate the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, this was the third and final part of the promise that was fulfilled for them when God turned their mourning into celebration. Not long before this Feast of Purim, this great celebration among the Hebrew people, back in chapter 4, it says there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. The Jews were mourning their own funeral as a death sentence hung like a dark cloud over their people. And yet just a few months later, here they are throwing the party of a lifetime. And again, they weren't celebrating the slaughter of their enemies. They weren't celebrating a great military battle. They weren't celebrating the fear that they now instilled in the Persians. No, they were celebrating the promise that had been kept and that celebration of the promise was to be recognized for all generations to forever remember who their God is And what he'd done for them, he turned their sackcloth, their mourning, into a celebration. The the 30th Psalm is a song that David wrote for the dedication of the temple. It actually occurred after his death, but nonetheless, it was a coming fulfillment of a promise. And in response, David wrote, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. He takes away our sackcloth and clothes us instead with gladness. He turns our distress into peace, our sorrow into joy, and our mourning into celebration. So David responds by saying that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. That phrase, my glory, was used, uh, by the way, in ancient, ancient Hebraic poetry to refer to your whole being. 
So David's response, which really should be our response to God's promises fulfilled in our lives, is to turn from our mourning and celebrate with our whole being, with all that we are, with all of the hope and joy and confidence that we can muster. We are to celebrate the promise fulfilled, never forgetting who he is and what he's done for us. Now, the the trouble with celebrations, however, especially those when we repeat them over and over and over again, they become traditions and the trouble is we can celebrate the outcomes of promises fulfilled in our lives without ever giving a moment's thought to the God who accomplished those outcomes in our lives. We can actually forget. And I would, I would actually argue that many do forget why we celebrate. In World War II, the book of Esther was treasured by the Jews who were imprisoned in the Nazi death camps because it promised the survival, of course, of the race despite the fact that Hitler was attempting to completely annihilate them. And of course, we know now that the hope of those who died was ultimately realized because the Jewish people survived. Ironically, there are many Jews today who have been unable to accept that there is a God who is all-powerful and all-present because of the horrors of the Nazis. Karen Armstrong explains their sentiment this way. She said, if this God is omnipotent, all-powerful, he could have prevented the Holocaust. If he was unable to stop it, he's impotent and useless. If he could have stopped it and chose not to, he's a monster. In effect, these Jews have, in the words of Karen Jobes, put God on trial, found him inexcusably guilty and worthy of death, but still went to evening prayer. Jews still continue to celebrate the significance of Purim year after year. This indictment of God is poignant for when God did come into the world 2,000 years ago, he was put on trial, judged guilty and worthy of death by human reasoning and executed. So there are Jewish people today who continue to celebrate Purim year after year out of religious and cultural tradition, even though they have completely forgotten God as the reason for their celebration. Not all of them, of course, but many. In fact, one of the, the central texts of rabbinic Judaism, the Talmud, describes, uh, it actually pre- prescribes drinking and celebrating on Purim until one can no longer tell the difference between the phrases, Mordecai be blessed and Haman be cursed. So for many, Purim has become nothing more than a drunken party with friends and family who actually dress up in costumes and masks, many of them quite lewd, for a time of high revelry in their homes and even out in the streets. It's a massive celebration where for many, God has largely been forgotten. Now listen, before we look down our noses at the Jews, as we gather in our homes a few weeks ago with friends and family or in a few months in the future or just the other night, we go to parties at the office and parades out in the streets during the Advent season, Christmas season, or we hunt for Easter eggs on Resurrection Day, or we shoot off fireworks and enjoy one another's company, I think it's entirely appropriate for us to ask ourselves, what are we celebrating? Or better yet, who are we celebrating? Because the Advent season is intended to be a time of expectant waiting and preparation that culminates with the celebration of the nativity of Jesus at Christmas, the coming of Jesus, which is what Advent means. Resurrection Sunday and the days preceding it are all about Jesus and what he did for us, not the Easter bunny and baskets full of candy, right? Right, Fourth of July, for the Christian, 
rather than Independence Day, for me it's Dependence Day, dependence on Christ and the fact that he's allowed us the freedom to live in such a place where we can do what we're doing right now freely. In other words, just like Purim for the Jews, the holidays that we recognize today are all about celebrating the fulfillment of a promise. And of course, I think most Christians understand that intellectually. But in practice, I'm asking, what are we actually celebrating? And listen, there's nothing wrong with decorations and gifts and big meals and parties, right? There's nothing wrong with uh, having fun and searching for eggs or shooting off fireworks. I love all that. It's fun. As long as we haven't forgotten the one for whom these celebrations were created. Okay, listen, in all of the eating and drinking and singing and festivities, where is God? In all of the decorating and spending and receiving, where is God? In all of the hectic shopping and planning and business of these seasons and and all of the parties and the fun and fellowship that's good, we need to ask ourselves, where is God? Because you understand, Jesus is the promise. And in him, there's peace. There's relief from our distress. In him, our sorrow is turned into joy. And in fact, all of his promises find their yes in him. Jesus is the promise and the fulfillment of everything that comes with that promise. Peace, joy, and celebration. It's all good, as long as we don't forget who it is we're celebrating. And so listen, if, if you're struggling today, if there's distress, sorrow even, maybe loss in your life, listen, there is a promise for you. A promise of peace from your distress. A promise of joy out of your sorrow to the point of celebration. And yet you'll never find that promise fulfilled anywhere but in the presence of Jesus Christ. We can mask our pain. We can take the edge off of our hurt by focusing on other things, but the only one who can truly fulfill the promise of peace and joy, we're talking about the kind that no one can take away from you, the only one who can fulfill that promise is the one who made that promise. Why? Because he is the promise. Jesus Christ, he's God He's love, he's the truth, he's healing, he's comfort, he is the only way, he is life abundant. He is our conquering king. The one who vanquishes all our enemies and removes our sackcloth and clothes us with gladness. It is he alone who can give us peace and joy when it cannot be found anywhere else. It's not up to us. It's not up to you to provide the promise. It's not up to you to produce peace and joy for yourself. You can't, no matter how hard you try. There's sorrow in this world that we cannot overcome on our own. So you need not try. Instead, knowing that God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we simply need to accept that promise he's already made. Take all of our sorrows to the king, casting all our cares on him because all the promises of God find their yes in him. And then when peace and joy come, and I'm telling you it will come, then we celebrate, never forgetting who he is. And what he's done, we celebrate Jesus, the promise. 
Let's pray.